0: Have you ever been super excited to show someone something that you created, you made? Maybe it's like, you know, maybe when you're a kid, you had an art project or something that you did, or maybe uh, now if you're older, you have a house project or or some sort of thing that you, you've created, you've done, or maybe it's a song or something like I've learned this song, and you're like, I want to show this to this person, and you're super excited to show it to them, and they didn't really react to it very much. Or have you ever? Uh, thought that, okay, I've done this thing, I'm going to show it to this person, they're going to be really impressed, they're going to be like, wow, and then you showed it to them, and they weren't super responsive. Sometimes people will say, you know, maybe if there's a comedian uh, telling a joke, and people don't really respond to it, or if there's some sort of performer on a stage doing something, they might go back behind the curtain to other people, and, and the people just aren't reacting to anything they're doing, and they would say, wow, tough crowd out there, huh? because it's like this crowd is difficult to impress. They're not responding to what's happening. And so consider this. What impresses you in your life? What makes you say, Wow, uh, I'm impressed by that. What What does it take to amaze you? What would, it, what would someone have to do for you to stand back and say, Wow. And we're often uh, impressed with great accomplishments. If something is difficult or challenging and somebody's able to do it we may say wow i'm i'm really impressed like i'm amazed by what this person was able to do or maybe in a marriage um, one spouse often does uh, all the cooking and then i don't know maybe valentine's day or something the other spouse says hey you know take it easy tonight honey um i'm gonna i'm gonna do the cooking tonight and then the other spouse is kind of like, "Oh, okay oh, we'll see how that's going to turn out and then when dinner time comes, the spouse walks in, they see a table beautifully set, and they see a meal of various awesome foods just laid out, and they say, wow, I'm impressed. they you know, didn't really expect it to come all like that. And so what makes someone worthy of your amazement or astonishment? And then as we think about our lives with following Jesus, what does it take to impress Jesus? What impresses him? What is worthy of his amazement? And do you think he's ever impressed with you? Do you ever think he's ever he's ever amazed with you? Do you ever think he ever looks at you and says, "Wow, uh, that's amazing! Like, you're amazing." Do you ever think he says that to you? In the passage we're looking at today in the Gospel according to Luke, we'll learn what impresses Jesus in Luke chapter seven. This whole chapter is about people wrestling with who Jesus is. We've seen a lot leading up to this. We've seen Jesus. Um, Healing people, casting out demons, you've seen him teaching, and now it's getting to the point where people are asking, Who is Jesus? Who is this guy? And ever since chapter four, when Jesus laid out his his kingdom agenda in his inaugural sermon, he said, I'm my to summarize it, it's my ministry, what I'm coming to do, my mission is to release and to restore, to release people from what burdens them and to restore them to who they're made to be by God now in chapter 7, people are either seeing who Jesus is, or they're still trying to figure it out. If it's, you're thinking about like a camera being in focus, it's like, Jesus is still blurry to some people, but he's coming, starting to come into focus, and some people are seeing him in full focus, seeing, oh, I see who Jesus is. The question we need to ask ourselves is, are we seeing Jesus clearly? As we're going about our daily lives, are we seeing Jesus Clearly. Two people have an encounter with Jesus in this passage. And first we're going to look at uh, the centurion's encounter with Jesus and answer the question, what amazes Jesus? What amazes Jesus? And then we're going to look at the whole passage, including the widow's encounter with Jesus, and answer the question, well, who is Jesus? Well, what amazes Jesus? And then, who is Jesus? After finishing uh, his sermon in chapter 6, Jesus went to Capernaum which was on the Sea of Galilee and it was Jesus' home base of ministry. And it was a Jewish center um, for both agriculture with an economy of agriculture and fishing. And there's a road, a major road going by Capernaum which explains why there was a Roman centurion stationed in this town. And we may ask, what is a centurion? And you can kind of see from the name like centurion, century. A centurion is a captain over a hundred soldiers, centuries, a hundred years. He's a captain of the Roman army, over a hundred soldiers, and he was a non-Jewish Gentile. He's a not Jewish, not from the nation of Israel. He's a Gentile, and he's a Roman citizen. And they served as Caesar's representative in whatever town they're stationed, and they're like a a go-between between the people and the empire. And the centurion had a problem. He had a servant who was sick and near death. I kind of think about the, the movie The Princess Bride. Uh, he's dead. No, he's mostly dead. You know? Anybody? Nobody. Okay. Uh, so he has a servant who's highly valued, or another way to say, it is highly esteemed. Like this is a servant, not just like, you know, he's a good worker. It's like he esteems him. He's like values him as as a person. And this servant had become sick at the point of death. And upon hearing that Jesus is in town, he. The centurion sends the elders of the Jews to go talk to Jesus. And let's just take a moment to recognize the dynamics of, dynamics of this situation. Jesus is a Jew. Uh, he's an Israelite. And his mission, primarily at this point, is been to other Israelites, to other Jewish people. And that's where his message is focused. And it makes sense because, after all, uh, Israel's scriptures, the Old Testament, were the ones that made them look forward to the Messiah, the coming of Christ. He's fulfilling those the Messiah whom they've been waiting for God's chosen king who will rescue his people and what is he going to rescue them from? well if we went back to Zechariah's song in chapter 1 where he's praising God for raising up a king, he says you've raised up a king who will save us from our enemies from the hand of all who hate us Zechariah says that the promise to Abraham was that God would deliver them from their their enemies so that they may serve and worship him without fear. so who are Israel's enemies at this point? Well, it's the Romans. So this guy is part of the people that are considered Israel's enemies. Many in Israel believed that the Messiah was going to come, lead them to a military victory over Rome, and set up a political kingdom on earth in place of the Roman Empire. We're probably going to have our land back, we're going to have our temple back, we're going to, you know, we're going to have all this back. We're going to run this country like we want it to be run. And this centurion is not only a Gentile, but he's a Roman Gentile. And not only a Roman Gentile, but a captain in the Roman army. He's part of the problem that the Jewish people believe the Messiah would eliminate. But then again, we just heard in Jesus' sermon that from the previous passage that we're supposed to love our enemies. This Roman would certainly be considered an enemy by the, many of the Jewish people. So the elders of the Jews uh, come to, are sent by the centurion. They give Jesus reasons why they should help the centurion. Uh, they plead with Jesus earnestly, saying, He is worthy to have you do this for him. For he loves our nation, and he is the one who built us our synagogue. Perhaps they're saying, he he isn't like other Romans. He doesn't hate our nation. He actually loves our nation, and he proved it by building us this synagogue. He's not like the other Romans. And Jesus just preached this sermon about loving your enemies, doing good and lending while expecting nothing in return. And these elders are telling Jesus uh, that the centurion... What he's done is making him worthy of a return. He's, he's done something that makes him worthy of you helping him. Perhaps this is their way of repaying him. Like, he's done all this for us, and now we're going to appeal to Jesus on his behalf. Perhaps the centurion believes this is how the elders of the Jews can pay him back. You know, talk to Jesus for me. And this is how the culture works. I scratch your back, you scratch my back. Trans- transactional relationships. And we live in a lot of those transactional relationships, too. Well, I'm not going to do for somebody what they're not willing to do for me or it's you know if they're going to treat me that way fine you know I'm going to treat them that way too and we do a, transactional relationships and people who are in a position to help others did it expecting something in return uh, Jesus agrees to go with them but when they're not too far from the house still a little distance away um, now all of a sudden friends of the centurion come and start talking to Jesus and it becomes clear that the centurion isn't operating in that system of you scratch my back, I'll scratch your back. Like, hey, I scratch the backs of the Jews here in town by building a synagogue. Jesus, will you come scratch my back by healing my servant? He's not thinking that way. He's not thinking, because I've done this good thing, now I deserve something in return. The centurion's friends bring this message to Jesus. Verse 6. Lord, do not trouble yourself, for I'm not worthy that you come under my roof. Therefore, I do not presume to come to you. The elders of the Judas told Jesus, look, here's what makes him worthy to have you do this for him. But the centurion says the exact opposite. He says, I'm not worthy to come to you, and I'm not worthy to have you come to me, and I'm not worthy to come to you. He doesn't think Jesus owes him. He doesn't tell Jesus, this is why I'm worthy. He doesn't bring Jesus his resume of good things. He's done so he can get something in return. Instead of demanding from Jesus, hey, you owe me, he humbles himself before Jesus. And the message from the centurion continues, but say the word, and let my servant be healed. Try to a man set under authority, with soldiers under me, and I say to one, go, and he goes, and to another come, and he comes. And to my servant, do this, and he does it. And he's describing his position as an army captain. He has people above him, are uh, command over him, he has people under him that are, uh, he's in command over, and he says, you know, go do this, and they do it. Soldiers listen, it's like, I, I want you to go do this task, do Or go do this thing, and they go and do it. They listen. You just have to say the word. And verse 9 tells us Jesus' response. When Jesus heard these things, he marveled at him. And turning to the crowd that followed him, said, I tell you, not even in Israel have I found such faith. When those who had been sent returned to the house, they found a servant well. Jesus marveled at the centurion. He's a, astonished by him. He's impressed with him. And then he turns to this crowd of people following him, and he holds up the centurion as an example of faith. Like, look at this guy. Look at what he's saying about me. Look at his faith. And usually people marvel at are astonished by and are impressed with Jesus. Like, wow! Like, his, look at his authority. Look at these great things he's doing. People are marveling at Jesus. But there's two key incidents where Jesus marvels at people, And both have to do with faith. And Josue actually mentioned one last week uh, in his testimony that he was giving last Sunday. While Jesus was in his hometown, Jesus marveled at their unbelief, their lack of faith. And here, Jesus marvels at this man's faith. He turned to those who were following him and said, I tell you, not even in Israel have I found faith like this. These Israelites are supposed to be the people of faith. But Jesus points to a Gentile and basically says, he has more faith than I found than any of you. you, know, you can you imagine that? Uh, insult if you're following Jesus around, and it's like, oh, he has more faith than all of you guys. Like, oh, but oh, we're the people of faith. Abraham, you know, he faith. He trusted God. Where the, how can you even say that? And so, what is commendable about the centurion? What is it about the centurion that oppresses Jesus? First, he approaches Jesus by faith and not by works. He does not appeal to Jesus based on what he has done. The Jewish elders commended the centurion's works. They held up what he has done as the reason Jesus should should help him. He is worthy to have me do this for him because of these things he has done. Jesus instead commends his faith, not his works. The centurion knows he's unworthy, but he approaches Jesus by faith, not by works. So consider for yourself, how do you approach Jesus? Do you approach him through faith, or do you approach him through works? Jesus Here's all these things I've done, and this is why you should listen to me. This is why you should do things for me. This is why um, you should care about me. Or do you approach him with the faith of saying, I know I'm unworthy to have you come to me, and I'm unworthy to come to you, but here I am anyway. That's approaching him by faith. And second, the centurion sees who Jesus really is. The centurion sees more of Jesus than other people are seeing. The, the centurion sees Jesus as someone... Not only with uh, the ability to heal, but with authority. He doesn't only see his power to heal, but his position of authority. The centurion uh, sees Jesus as a person with a clear authority. He just has to say the word, and something will be done. The crowds seek to touch Jesus in order to be healed. But the centurion says, I don't need to come close to you. I know you can just say the word, and the healing will come. The Sanitarian trust Jesus can do it simply with the word. He treats him with a king, as someone with authority, bowing down before him, saying, I'm not worthy of you, and other people aren't treating him like that. And he sees him as someone with authority even over life or death. My my servant is near death. He's way far gone, but I know you have authority over that. Jesus marvels at him. He's impressed with him. He's astonished. I have yet to see faith like this. And faith is not just about believing that Jesus can do stuff for you. The, the crowds coming to Jesus all believe Jesus to do stuff for them. That's why they're coming to him. But Jesus commends the centurion's faith in comparison to what he's seeing in other people. The centurion believes Jesus can help him, but there's more. The centurion doesn't just see Jesus power, but his position. The centurion actually sees Jesus, not just what Jesus can do. He can see other people are like, I just want what you can do. But he actually sees this is who Jesus is. He's someone with authority. He's a king. He's in control. He can just say the word and it will happen. And others aren't seeing this. They're treating him as a miracle worker. Someone who can just solve their problems, but they're not seeing him as the king that he is. And at the same time, they're seeing who seeing who Jesus is. But he's also seeing himself in relation to Jesus. He says, I'm unworthy of you. I'm unworthy to have you come to me. I'm unworthy to come to you. So he doesn't approach Jesus just to get something from him. Or thinking he's done enough to make himself worthy of Jesus' help. He says, I'm not worthy of that. I can't show you anything that will make me worthy. And you have to imagine, here's this powerful man, commander over a hundred soldiers, putting himself in a place of submission and need before Jesus. He knows he's unworthy, so the only thing he can do is trust in Jesus to help him. He needs to trust in If I can't bring anything to leverage or something out of Jesus, I just have to trust in his mercy, his compassion, his grace, his love, that because of who he is, he'll help me, because I have no way to get him to do that how based days I have done. So how do we answer the question, what amazes Jesus? I mean, in short, Jesus is amazed by faith, but... What kind of faith is amazing? I define it like this faith when we see from the centurion. Faith brings us to Jesus on our knees with empty but open hands. Faith brings us to Jesus on our knees with empty but open hands. Jesus is amazed by faith that brings us to him on our knees with empty but but open hands. This is the position of our faith. On our knees, nothing in our hands, but they're they're open, ready to receive from him. Here's another way to think of it. Jesus is impressed when we're impressed with him. Jesus is amazed when we're amazed by him. Jesus marvels when we marvel at him. In this story. Jesus was not impressed with what the man had done. He was impressed by his faith that was allowing him to see Jesus for who he is, not just what he can do. And the man brings no resume of impressive things he's done. He comes empty-handed. So ask yourself, for your own life, when do you think Jesus is amazed by you? When you have a good Bible reading streak? When you haven't missed your prayer times for a week? When you did something good to help someone out, you're like, oh, that felt good. I think Jesus is probably pretty impressive now. When you've kept yourself from sinning, when you've talked to someone about Jesus, then we probably wouldn't often say these things or think these things consciously, like, oh, I just did something good. I bet Jesus is you know, really impressed with me right now. It's like, you know, if we're actually saying uh, what we think we believe is that, no, oh, that doesn't impress Jesus, but how we live is I need to do these things in order to impress him. And certainly these things do impress. And please Jesus, but do you ever think Jesus could be amazed by your faith? And this story shows us showed us that Jesus marvels when we come to him on our knees with empty but open hands. We come on our knees, bowing before him as our king. He's worthy of our praise, but we're unworthy of his presence. We do not bring anything with us to say, look Jesus, look what I've done, or look what I have. This makes me worthy. We come with empty hands, but they're open to receive from him. And that's the only posture we can take uh, before him. This phrase I've heard a lot, and I was trying to figure out where it came from this week, but uh, it wasn't successful. But it's coming before him with the empty hands of faith. It's that faith comes to Jesus with nothing in our hands, saying, I'm not trying to leverage anything out of you, Say I'm deserving of this. Let's come to you with open with empty hands. That's what the posture of faith looks like. And often I think that Jesus is tough to please that as I go through my life, I'm not living in line with the Gospel, or not living in line with God's Word, that I imagine that uh, even what I showed you, you know, Jesus, look at all the stuff I've done today or this week. He's kind of like, eh, it's like not very impressive. And that's maybe actually what he thinks of what I'm trying to bring my works to him. And actually, I can think he's mostly disappointed with me for not measuring up I feel like I've never done enough and what I've done isn't good enough and so is that how you live do you live feeling like I just need to do more to impress Jesus like how can I I I haven't done enough today and sure I did some stuff but what I've done isn't good enough and so Jesus is just looking for more are you trying to do more to be worthy of Jesus' attention to be worthy of Jesus' affirmation And this story shows us that it's the admission of our unworthiness before Jesus that's the first step to faith that Jesus marvels at. When we come to him with nothing to offer, and recognizing him as the one worthy of our trust and allegiance, we're living by faith. We come to him with our weakness, our need, our sin, our unworthiness. And this story is encouraging to me because it shows me Jesus can't actually stand over me and be like, wow, I was amazed by you. That's not by me doing more or doing better. Richard Lovelace was a, a church historian who worked at a seminary at Gordon Conwell, theological seminary. One of the topics he researched was revival and renewal. How does revival happen? What are the conditions? What does it look like? Um, what needs to happen in order for people to be renewed um, by God and for revival to break out? And you know, think of yourself. Do you feel like you need to be renewed? Do you feel run down or broken down? Do you feel like your spiritual life is a little dead, bland, and mediocre? And then consider what Loveless says. The, the centurion is a perfect example of what Richard Loveless calls the preconditions for continuous renewal or ongoing renewal. Let me share just three short quotes from Loveless that describe what the centurion experience. He says, our first coming to Christ and the strength of our expression of new life in Him are dependent on our accurate apprehension of our own need and of the character of the true God. And again, he says, acceptance of Christ and appropriation, uh, meaning taking something for one's own and receiving it, acceptance of Christ and appropriation of every element in redemption is conditional on awareness of God's holiness and conviction of the death of sin. Finally, what men wake up to in the light of revival is their own condition and the nature of the true God. So he's telling us, two: if you want to be renewed spiritually in your life, he's saying the two conditions are awareness of God, especially His holiness, His sovereignty, His righteousness, and awareness of our own sin, our own neediness, our own weakness, our own unworthiness. It's a knowledge of God's worthiness and a knowledge of our unworthiness. And Satyrian is a perfect example of someone who's clearly seeing Jesus. He is worthy, but I am unworthy. He's seeing those two elements. And there's a chart some of you have seen um, before. It's, a, it's called the cross chart. You know, it's pretty pretty original. But it looks like this. So this, at the top, is uh, awareness of God. Down here is awareness of God. Sin. And before we enter this, picture this as a line of your life. And before you have an awareness of God's holiness, his sovereignty, his righteousness, or an awareness of your sin, you do not see the cross. You're not seeing the cross as the answer to that. So there's this gap here. We come to a moment when we're converted to, to Christ, is we have a moment where we see, I'm aware of God's holiness, and all fall short of his glory. All of sin and fall short of his glory. I'm awareness of I'm aware of this gap between who God is and who I am. He is worthy, but I'm unworthy. And then as we grow in our Christian life, we more and more become aware, more aware of God's holiness and righteousness and glory, and more aware of our sin. And therefore, at the cross becomes more and more precious to us. We more and more see, I need Jesus. I need love. I need His grace. I need His mercy. I need His compassion. That's my only hope here. And as we uh, go through our Christian life, we experience renewal as we more and more see, wow, God is way bigger than I thought He was. And I'm way worse off than I thought I was. And then we say, thank you for grace. Thank you for love. It doesn't make us work more. We say, I'm unworthy of you. And... What is my answer to it? It's only your love and generosity and forgiveness. The next question we're going to answer quicker than that one is, who is Jesus? Who is this Jesus that we come to in faith? We're saying, the faith brings us to Jesus um, with uh, on our knees with empty but open hands. So who is this Jesus we're coming to? The second story is about a widow and she's in a much different position than the superior. He's in a position of power. He's In the Roman army, he has soldiers under him, but she's uh, a widow. She's lost her husband, and she's uh, in what people in the Old Testament scholars call the quartet of the vulnerable, you know, like a singing quartet, four people. Um, But the Old Testament talks about uh, the poor, the orphan, the widow, and the immigrant. The four people that are most needy, most vulnerable, most easily oppressed, and pushed aside are the quartet of the vulnerable. And these stories are linked together, showing Jesus' authority over life and death. And from Capernaum, Jesus goes uh, to the Galilean town of Nain, about 25 miles away. And what's the scene he experiences when he comes to Nain? Well, he's coming with this group of people uh, that are following him, and as they approach the gate of the town, they see another group of people coming out. And what happened is uh, this widow had lost her son. So what they hear are some flutes. Usually this is a funeral procession. What they'll have is flutes playing and usually like an official a like wailing woman. And those sounds are you know, accompanying with the music of that occasion. But it also kind of is able to drown out the people who have just lost someone, who are just weeping. So it's not like you have all these people silent and you're just listening to uh, this, this poor widow weeping over her dead son. But it's actually, you have this music that allows them to just kind of do it freely. And they see people with torn clothes. There's a sign of mourning. They have, like, you know, kind of these robes on. And it's like, uh, somebody died, so they tear it, and it show a sign of mourning. So, they, they're mourning. so they see people walking with that. They see a widow weeping over her, her son. And they see men carrying a plank, uh, a buyer is called, with a, a port on it that's wrapped, but visible. Because of the warm climate, Speedy burials were necessary before deterioration would happen. And usually the corpse wouldn't even be left overnight. So this death probably happened just in the past several hours or maybe a couple hours. And this isn't a funeral service or a memorial service that gets scheduled a week out or a couple months out. But members of this funeral procession witnessed this man die just hours ago. And so imagine the freshness of the emotions. So what does Jesus do? He, He sees the woman and he says to her he feels compassion says, he says to her do not weep which would be very insensitive and inconsiderate and cruel if he wasn't about to do something and it takes us back to what he said in the Beatitudes blessed are you who weep now for you shall laugh what Jesus is about to do is a taste foretaste of his future kingdom where death is defeated so Jesus comes up he has compassion he says do not weep he touches the plank that the dead body is on and this would possibly make him uh, ceremonial, ceremonially unclean by touching a dead corpse. But Jesus does something even more strange than telling the widow not to weep at her only son's funeral. He speaks to the dead man. He gives the dead man a command. Young man, I say to you, rise. And then Luke says in verse 15, the dead man sat up and began to speak. And Jesus gave him to his mother. Jesus restores the son to his mother, calling uh, him back from death just by saying so. But death should have made Jesus unclean, but instead he defeats death. And so we see Jesus is not only a king with supreme authority, but he's also a king with compassion. And think about this, this scene of Jesus coming to this woman. Do you think that Jesus enters into your most difficult, most heart-wrenching, most sob-worthy situations of your life with compassion. Do you think he draws near without even being asked? Let this response to the grieving widow show you what Jesus is like in your distress, grief, and sadness. He's drawn towards you with compassion. He's not repelled by it. Come on, get it together, Jesus clean yourself up a little bit. He's drawn towards this weeping widow. One day he will touch all that is broken and wrong. He'll put a stop to all of it and reverse all of it. And this event causes those who are present, um, both those following Jesus and those who are with the funeral procession, to be seized with fear and to glorify God, saying, a great prophet has arisen among us, and God has visited his people. And fear is a common reaction in the Bible when People experience the presence and power of God in their midst. And they recognize Jesus as a prophet whom, with whom God is present and active on behalf of his people. And when Zechariah sang a song back in chapter 1 of Luke, he praised God for visiting his people. This isn't just like, oh, like a social visit, like thanks for stopping by. But this is the language of God coming to rescue and save them, like he did in the Exodus. God has come to visit his people, he's come to do a new Exodus, he's come to do something new here. And the people are trying to grapple with who Jesus is. They're trying to put him into a category. And so they say, oh, he's a prophet. And the great prophets, Elijah and Elisha, um, were, did miracles like this. Even Elijah raised a widow's son. And so they're seeing, this is what these guys did from the Old Testament. And when Jesus asks his disciples in Luke 9, who do people say I am? One of the things they say, well, some people say you're Elijah. Some people say you're one of the prophets from old, risen from the dead. And so people are putting him in this category trying to find a category for Jesus. They've seen what he can do. They've heard him teach. They're trying to answer the question, who is this guy that's doing all this stuff? And that's the question for us. Who is Jesus to you? The way you approach him and address him shows who you think he is. What kind of king he's like. And we've learned Jesus is impressed with faith that brings us to him on our knees with empty but open hands. So who is this Jesus that we place our faith in Here's a list that we see from these two encounters. Jesus is king. The centurion addresses him that way. Jesus is willing to help. He goes with the Jewish elders to the centurion. Jesus has authority. He's in charge. What he says happens. He works by his word, just like God. Just has to say it. God spoke the universe into existence. Jesus can just speak uh, sickness away. He can speak death away. Jesus is worthy of honor. Jesus commends and affirms faith. Jesus is compassionate. He has compassion on the widow. Jesus initiates faith and moves toward the hurting. The widow doesn't ask for anything. Jesus moves toward her on one of the worst days of her life. Jesus has authority over death. Jesus brings healing and life where there's sickness and death. And Jesus is for all people, Jew and Gentile. The Roman is Gentile. We can assume that this widow is Jewish. This passage gives me hope because it shows me that it's possible for me to be commended by Jesus. It's possible for him to affirm me. As someone who feels like they're falling short, it's good news to hear. Jesus is actually looking for reasons to commend me and affirm me and say, You know, I'm really impressed by you. Great job great news to hear that you can actually be pleased with me. And it's not hard. Uh, there's not a whole bunch of hoops to jump through. There isn't a list of things to get done. If we want to be commended by Jesus, all we need to we don't need to focus on doing more, but on trusting more. We need to focus on Jesus for who He is. Trusting Him. Jesus is impressed with faith that brings us on to Him on our knees with empty but open hands. All this is what humility looks like. It's one of the big themes of Luke that he repeats this phrase, that everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, and all humble themselves will be exalted. This passage encourages us to see Jesus as King, as our Lord with supreme authority. And so consider this. How much do you, authority do you think Jesus has? And authority over what? In this passage gives has authority over life and death. It's hard to change someone from almost dead to healthy and from someone from death to life. And so do you see Jesus as someone who has authority over your marriage, over your job, over your health, over your kids, over your finances, over people in your life that you want to come know Jesus? Do you come to Jesus as the one who can make all things new in every area of your life? The centurion, if you think about it, I mean, Jesus is walking to the earth. And so it's like, well, you know, Jesus isn't walking around for us to talk to. But think about this, what the centurion does he's praying, he's talking to God. That's what prayer is. So prayer is how we approach God. He comes to Jesus confessing his unworthiness and Jesus' worthiness. He trusts that Jesus is able to do whatever he wants simply by saying the word. So do you pray like that? Do you. Bow before Jesus with empty but open hands. And the truth is that Jesus has authority and power to work miracles in our life according to his will and his timing. And Katie and I, when I was talking about this passage, and I was telling her, like, I feel like this is what the big this is all about Jesus' authority and I'm like how much authority he has. And I felt like it's not really like landing on me. I'm like I, what I tried to do is preach these sermons to myself before I preach it to you, I want this to be my heart. And she brought up um, a lot of something she's, uh, you know, in her wisdom as uh, God's teaching her and teaches me is that oftentimes we can believe one of two things. Jesus is able, but not willing. Or he's willing, but not able. So, sure, I believe Jesus is able to do whatever he wants in my life, but I don't think he's willing. Or, well, I know Jesus is willing, but he doesn't really have the power to do it. And which of those do you fit into? If you believe Jesus is. Able to do anything with just saying the word, but he's not willing? Or that he's willing, like his heart goes out to you, but you really can't do much about it? Which one do you sit in? I couldn't I decide which one I more often feel. I think I often feel, I believe Jesus can do anything. Um, I maybe think that in my head, I don't know if I live it in my heart, but I often think he's not willing. And so we see here Jesus' supreme authority, but also his deep compassion that he's able and that He is willing and compassionate. And prayer is how we approach Jesus and I found this acronym ACTS um, to be a great prayer model. So if you never heard that as a way when you read a scripture or you're trying to pray about a situation you can use this as a format. You first is adoration, and this is where we're saying to Jesus or Jesus or God you are And then we fill that in. You are good. You have authority. You are compassionate. You are loving. And then we confess. We say, I'm sorry. Uh, What are the things you have to say sorry for? I'm sorry I've done this. I've done that. We're, We're confessing our unworthiness. We're seeing who He is. Confessing our unworthiness. And then T is thanksgiving. So adoration, confession, thanksgiving. It's saying thank you. Now we're saying, I just confessed all this stuff. Thank you for forgiving me. Thank you for still loving me. Thank you for all the good things in my life. And we go on. And then lastly... Supplication, that's you know, it's a big word. I just like to think of it as supplying. We're asking for God to supply things to us. Supplication, we're saying, please, please help with this, please help with that. But oftentimes in our prayers, we kind of just do this one. Here's my list of things that I want done and that I'd like you to do for me. And then we kind of you know hang up the phone and then we're kind of done. But instead, if we're going through these, it'll actually shape what we're asking for. What are we saying? Asking for help for it's like okay, I've adored you. I've said this is all true of you. I've said I'm sorry. I said thank you. And now it's like, well, I confess that I was selfish and harsh to my kids or my wife or my friend or I'm being, you know, uh, prideful. It's like now please let me have humility. Or please let me uh, treat my kids or my wife or husband or coworkers or neighbors in the way that you want. When we start adoring and confessing and thanking before we ask for things. It influences what we're asking for. And this brings our prayers in line with what's true about God. So, just as we close, what if we really saw Jesus like the centurion did, with all authority in heaven and on earth? And what if we also saw him as compassionate, moving toward us in our distress, affliction, and sorrow? What if we felt he was near and that his heart goes out to us when we're experiencing difficulty, when we're having the worst days of our week or our month or our lives? The good news is that Jesus is our compassionate King who is the fear of death, his authority over life and over death. Let's pray that we would see him that way. God, by your Spirit, we can see Jesus for who he truly is that we can, by your Spirit, behold, is glorious. Lord, would you let us in our daily lives see Jesus as the one with all authority and the one with deep compassion towards us, as people. In his name we pray. Amen.